Our reading today is from Romans 2.17 through 3.8. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew who is, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from the man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithful, faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we see? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their con condemnation is just. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate, one of the pastors here. If you're joining us at home or in person, uh, really good uh, to have you with us. Um, there's a guy named Sir William Osler, and by the way, if I could have a name that had Sir before it, that would be sweet, but he's, uh, he's one of the pioneers of medicine, and, and he said this, he said, the physician who treats himself has a fool for a patient. The, the, the physician who treats himself has a fool for a patient. And, and another physician was uh, reflecting on this, and he said how true that was, and the reason was is because he said, we are creatures of emotion, and it's difficult to stay unbiased and unemotional when considering oneself. Another one said this, said, um, he shall never think about the worst disease in himself or herself, so one needs an unbiased opinion. And when you think about that, that's incredibly ironic, is it not? Um, here are physicians, doctors who are trained to wisely know symptoms, know situations, and make prescriptions. 
And yet, there's something inherent in the nature where they should not do that for themselves. They might potentially miss what is going on. They may not be aware of their really true condition. Well, Jesus, at one point in his ministry, said this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And what Jesus was suggesting was, spiritually speaking, we are like physicians who treat ourselves. We fail to understand the true desperate plight of our condition. You know, as we began this series a number of weeks ago, uh, we started in chapter 1 and we saw Paul addressing a primarily Gentile audience, which equivalent in our day would maybe be coming from a non-religious background. And he began to show the symptoms of our dark heart. They began to list off various vices and immorality, and many people would just nod their heads and say, yeah, that's clear. It's clear there's something off there. But what's so interesting, you might expect at that point for Paul to begin to commend the virtuous or to begin to commend the moralistic or to begin to list off a number of things. Well, don't do this, do that. But then in chapter 2, it began this way in verse 1, writing to the religious and moralistic of the day, He says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And if you're keeping score at home, what is remarkable about this is Paul has basically in two chapters said this, You bad people, you're condemned and you're guilty. And guess what? You good people, you're condemned and you're guilty. It's incredible. Well, why is Paul doing this? Why is he going to such depth to to diagnose our condition? Why is Paul giving us, in one sense, the bad news? Put it this way, the physician who treats himself has a fool for a patient. Unless you know the bad news, you'll never come to the one who can really heal you. And today in our passage, Paul shows us how moralism and religion can lead to misplaced confidence in the external and how the solution is an inward transformation of the heart. In this passage, Paul shows, let me say it again, how moralism and religion can lead to misplaced confidence in the external and how the solution is an inward transformation of the heart. So, let me pray and we'll, we'll get into the passage. Father in heaven, um, you know our heart's condition today. You know our true condition, and you know what provides healing. And just pray today that your text would speak to each one of us wherever we are coming from, whether we are skeptical, whether we are devoted, that you would meet us here with your word, and that you would transform us not merely on the external, but 
the very depth of our heart, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, two, two kind of headings today. First is just the misplaced confidence of moralism and religion, and secondly, the heart of true spirituality. So, so firstly, the misplaced confidence of moralism and religion. Um, Paul begins this section, and he begins to list off all the privileges and advantages of the ethnic Jews in verses 17 through 20. So, so listen to this as Paul begins. He says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul has in those verses listed off three advantages, two distinguishing marks, and four privileges in these four verses. In verse 17, he has shown how they belong to God's covenant people. They're, they're descendants of Abraham. He has shown them how they are in possession of God's law. To boast in God meant that they had a special relationship with the one true creator God. In verse 18, he remarks how because of this, the Jews know his will because they have the law. They can actually approve what is best. They have discernment. They can look out and go, this is what is true. This is what is right. This is what is off. This is what's wrong. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul lays out kind of four privileges in relationship to the rest of the world. I'll just point out one. It's, he speaks about being a light to the nations, about opening the eyes of the blind, which meant that for the outside world that was skeptical, sometimes hostile, they were to be the people that could actually, people could look in and they could know God. They could look at their lives and say, this is what the one true God is like, and this is the kind of people He creates. But then, after laying out all those privileges, all those markers, all those distinctions, Paul turns the corner and look at what he says in verses 21 through 24. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Paul turns the corner, ironically, and he says this, it's entirely possible to know right from wrong. It's entirely possible to teach others what is right and wrong. It's entirely possible to even have a certain religious pedigree or background and yet not understand or be aware, as one pastor puts it, the terrible beauty of the law. Um, what do I mean? Paul mentions three things in this section specifically related to the law. He mentions adultery, he mentions stealing and robbing temples. Let me just focus in on one of those. I want you to see the beauty of the law. Um, and we're going to go for a moment to the Sermon on the Mount, this, this kind of famous sermon by Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says about, the, about adultery in, in Matthew 5. Jesus says this, You have heard what it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you notice what Jesus does here? Jesus says, here's the law, here's what you've heard. Now let me tell you the intent, the depth, the beauty of the law. It's not just external, it's a matter of the heart. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. If, if you had a first take at this passage and you heard Jesus say this, it'd be like Jesus handing you a basketball and then taking the 10-foot hoop and pulling a lever and raising it to like 100 feet and saying, all right, go dunk, right? It's like this is impossible. But what is Jesus getting at here? Keller puts it this way. Jesus is after the kind of a person, the kind of a heart, a life of absolute beauty. Not just the external behavior, but the heart the motivation, the attitude. I mean, let's be honest, like in a hashtag Me Too world, what, what if, what if God could rend our hearts like that? And see, that's why moralism and religion can so oftentimes produce a misplaced confidence because we can focus on the externals And we don't recognize the depth of the law and the degree in which it's a matter of the heart. And let's just be honest for a moment. Like, those of us who are here or watching at home, this is probably zeroing in on maybe where you and I need to hear this the most. Where do you, where do I tend to put our confidence as it relates into relating to God? What is it in our lives that maybe perhaps we think, because I am this kind of a person, because I do this, therefore God owes me? It, it's, it's subtle, but let me just mention a few. Think about a kind of moral righteousness. This is the one that says, hey, I'm well-behaved and in general virtuous. Therefore, God owes me. Or it's the work righteousness. This is really good for Midwestern people to hear. I work hard. Therefore, God owes me. Or maybe it's a parental righteousness. You know, I'm more godly than those parents over there who can't control their kids. Or maybe it's a, you know, Madisonian environmental righteousness. I care about the planet more than others do. Maybe it's a mercy and woke righteousness. I care about minorities, the poor, and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Therefore, God owes me. Or there's even a grace righteousness. You know what? I am more inclusive and kind and accepting than others. Therefore, God owes me. Now, listen, this is, this is the disorienting part here. Because when Paul began to, to, to lay out the privileges and the distinctions to this primarily Jewish audience, the, the religious and moralistic, it wasn't wrong. It's not wrong, for example, to, for example, in our context, to work hard or care about minorities or put covenant eyes on your computer and be faithful to your spouse. Those are good things, but what Paul's getting at 
is that when anything becomes a place that you place your status as a merit before God, to be right before Him, that is misplaced confidence. When you say in any context of your life, because I am like this, therefore God owes me a good life, it won't stand up. It's misplaced confidence. But this misplaced confidence is not just in the law and our obedience there, but it also can relate to external badges. And Paul gets at this in verses 25 through 27. Look at what he writes. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he, who keep, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written, have the written code and circumcision but break the law. That's fun to read. <laughs> um, Paul turns the corner to talk about circumcision. Um, you know, uh, this was the sign of the covenant. You go back to Genesis 15, God makes a special covenant with Abraham. And then in Genesis 17, he says, here's the sign, a sign of circumcision. Now, here's the general argument what's happening here. There were many Jews in that day And the question around circumcision was this, how can we be treated differently when we're circumcised? We've been set apart. We're God's people. How can we be treated differently than those who aren't? And Paul's basic argument is this. In verse 25, Paul says, in essence, it's entirely possible to be circumcised and yet not be in a right relationship with God, to have the outward but not have the inward. And then Paul turns the corner in verse 26 says, hey, if a man is uncircumcised, he keeps the precepts of the law, he can be regarded as circumcised. In other words, it's possible maybe for someone who doesn't have the outward mark to actually have the inward life and therefore to be treated as if you have the outward mark. And let me say, there are pages upon pages written on this whole section here. And there are actually um, many debates and there's godly theologians on either side. But what Paul is getting at here is, is this. Actually, nothing novel or new in, in one sense, because Moses writing in Deuteronomy says this. He says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Um, here's, here's the point. The circumcision is an outward mark. But if it does not include deep inward transformation, it is of no value. That's what Paul's getting at here. And let me just carry this forward for a moment to our context. The New Testament sign of circumcision is baptism. What what sets apart a person in this kind of special relationship, this outward act, was baptism. And we, you know, when we do baptisms here, one of the things we talk about, when we talk about, we say, say, hey, this is an outward expression of an inward reality. In other words, this, this thing we do here, going under the water, coming up, this doesn't save you. 
This is an outward expression of an inward reality. So baptism is an outward badge, but one that is to be accompanied by deep inward transformation, not perfection, but a progression, a work of God's Spirit that makes one new. And we'll see that more in chapters 6 to 8 in Romans, but for now, let me just summarize for a moment what we've seen in these first sections. Paul has been showing us that there is no advantage in being moral or religious when it comes to meriting anything before God. In fact, he has just shown that one of the most basic problems with moralism and religion is that it can actually blind us to our real condition. It can subtly make us think that we're okay because of this, when in actuality, we don't know our true condition. We can begin to think that our external performance or a religious background, or pedigree, or upbringing, or circumcision, or baptism, no, not, though not bad in and of themselves, nevertheless can lead to a misplaced confidence. So if that's the problem, what do we do, and where do we go? So, the heart of true spirituality. It all comes down to verses 28 and 29. Uh, look at it with me. Paul says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Let me suggest three things Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, because of the gospel, we are in a new era. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys have found it this way, but the last, you know, couple months, there's been these reflections as we've kind of hit the year mark with COVID, and a lot of our language is like, do you remember what it was like before, you know, March whatever of 2020? And you reminisce, right? And then we, we begin to think about, well, what's it going to be like when maybe this is mostly all said and done? You know, think about kind of getting back to normal or some sort of new normal. Well, as Paul writes here, he makes this distinction. He says, by the letter, or not by the letter, but by the Spirit. And what, that is, what Paul is doing here, he's saying this. On the one hand, in the past, God's law through Moses was central. But now in this new era, it is an era of God's Spirit being poured out in fullness. In other words, there's this... There's this actual fullness of the Spirit that actually enter your life and transform you from the inside out. But secondly, it's also a new heart. Um, when Paul says no one is a Jew outwardly, but one inwardly, notice that he's saying, guess what? There was a time in which the Jews had a very special relationship with God that was marked out, but now there is a circumcision it's a matter of the heart. Think about it this way. Think about kids when they're young, and you tell them, hey, you know what, you, you, you need to eat your vegetables, right? And they know, like, yeah, I should, I should eat these. This is what is good for me, right? But what do you hope as a parent? You hope down the line, 
that they're going to maybe someday be, like, get on like the keto diet or something like that. Like they'll actually like vegetables. They'll have new desires, new appetites. Paul is saying this. Paul is saying the heart of true spirituality is actually to have new desires. Not for vegetables necessarily, but new desires. Listen, I'll never forget in 1998, seeing outside of Hagman Hall with, and dropping off Amanda, who at the time was not yet my wife, and, we're, and then we're saying goodnight. It's late. I lean over and I give her a kiss, and then another. And I remember saying, we better stop. My thoughts are taking me other places at this point. And listen, if you would have known the history of my relationships, you would have thought, this is a completely different person. And all I can tell you is that there is new desires. There was new desires in my heart. Then thirdly, a new life. When when Paul says a praise not from man but from God, let me ask you, why do you do the things you do? Why are you living? What are you up to these days? What is the ultimate goal of your life? To have praise not from man but from God, it suggests this, that you were created to actually glorify God with everything you are. You know, the Westminster Catechism puts it this way, Um, What is the chief end of man? It is this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This means the heart of true spirituality means at the core of your being, you are living for God and His glory. And I know that sounds very high and pious, right? Like, this is way up here, but it is street savvy. In other words, if you're 13 or you're 30 or you're 65, it meets you right where you are. You know, um, I think about, for example, the greatest composer, arguably, in the history of Western music, Bach, would write in the corner of his arrangements, S-D-G, which meant sola deo gloria. To God alone be glory. And that, listen to what that means. It means as a husband or a spouse, as a single, as a worker, vocationally, whatever it is, it means in one way or another to work out what does it mean to be SDG in your life, written in the corner of it. So how do we live this out. If if this is what's happened, if this is the heart of true spirituality, this new era, this fullness of the Spirit, this new heart, these new desires, and a new life to live for Him, how do we go about, like, living that out day by day? What does that look like? Well, in these verses, Paul says that circumcision is a matter of the heart. In another letter Paul wrote, a little letter to the church at Colossae. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2.11. He says this, in him also you were circumcised where the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
What does that mean? I mean, seriously. Um, Let me put it this way. When Abraham entered into this covenant with God, like back in that day, I mean, today we, we would just sign a contract. Here's our agreement. Here's our covenant, right? In that day, they didn't do that. What they did is they actually acted out what would happen if you didn't fulfill the covenant, if you didn't fulfill the agreement. And circumcision, I mean, think about it, that's vulnerable, right? That's, that's very vulnerable. But what it meant was this, if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, your end of the agreement, you're cut out, you're cut off from this relationship with God. And listen, if you read the life of Abraham or you go on to other of his descendants, you'll quickly realize there is no way they fulfilled it, right? There's no way. They clearly were not faithful in the covenant. So how is it that God can be in relationship with them or any of us? And the answer is this. You need to be circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, which in essence means this. On the cross, when Jesus was crucified, he was cut off. Do you realize that? That's what that means. The circumcision of Christ means when you enter into a relationship with Christ by faith, it means He fulfilled the covenant for you. He took the curse for you. But not only that, it actually means now you have a new life. When In Colossians 2.11, when it says putting off the body of the flesh. And even actually a couple of verses later, it says, because of the res- resurrection, you've been made alive together with him. It means you now have the power to live a new life. Do you recognize that? Do you understand that? The power of what is happening here? It's not merely a new record. It's not merely you're forgiven. It's not anything less than that. But it's talking about a brand new life, a new relationship with the law, a new relationship with Christ that transforms you from the inside out. And Keller unpacks it this way. It's so helpful. He says this, when you read the law and you realize there's no way you can make it, right? When you read Matthew 5 and and you realize, gosh, how am I ever going to not commit adultery if this is a matter of the heart, you begin to understand this is actually describing a person. It's describing Jesus, the one who he says in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law completely. In other words, you're not crushed by the standard, but you see the beauty of Jesus when you read the law. And here's the part, when you put your faith in Christ, what's remarkable is not only are your sins paid for, we'll see this in Romans 4, but actually his law-keeping His obedience is now credited to your account. You are righteous. And it also changes your relationship to the law this way. Listen, if you're in Christ, you can't say to the law, it doesn't matter anymore what I do. In fact, in the next section, 3, 1 through 8, there's kind of this sort of blasphemous argument in which one might say, well, hey, why, why can't I just live how I want to live? Be unrighteous. Doesn't that just show God's righteousness? And Paul says, there's no way you can live that way. That's, you can't do that. If you really understand what Christ has done for you, you'll have a new attitude toward the law. You won't obey it to earn God's love. 
but you'll neither disregard it. Because if you see him for what he's done for you, how could you add any more to it? If that's where your sins are paid for, why would you heap more on him then? You'll want to live for him. You'll want to obey him. These are the new desires, the new heart. And Keller writes this, when you fail, when you fail to live up to the law, you're not crushed by it. You won't say, oh, what an awful person I am, because you'll, you'll know. You'll actually say, what a wonderful Savior he is, because he's taken it for you. Listen, how do you walk this out? And this is, this is the message of Romans, right here in chapter 2, and we'll see it fully lived out the rest of the way, but it is in Christ alone. It is Jesus at the center of your life. That's where this deep inward transformation comes. Not a veneer, not merely outward, but something that goes deep to the inward parts of your heart. There's a hymn written by John Owen. He captures the essence of it in this hymn. He says this, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. Do you want to experience the heart of true spirituality? Then look at the beauty of Christ, look at what he has done. Get rid of whatever else you think gives any merit before God. Get rid of it. In other words, don't count it as anything. And let who Christ is and what He's done change you. Not externally, merely, but to the very depth of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we, um, <laughs> we confess that we oftentimes put our confidence in external things. It is a reminder, and it shows us our need for what you have provided in and through your Son. And we pray, wherever we are coming from today, that we may see the depth and the beauty of who Christ is and what He's done, and that we would begin and continue in ever-increasing ways to live for Him and to live out of that love, we pray in your name. Amen.